This morning we're going to be in John chapter 9. And where we left off uh, in chapter 8 was Jesus giving the hard truth to some hard-hearted religious people. And because of that truth, the expression of truth hurts, they tried to stone him to death. So that was his thanks for giving them the truth. And today we're going to look at a blind man healed by Jesus who ends up with something far greater than his physical sight. Probably for many years, probably was a beggar. They didn't have the same social programs that, that we do. So if you were blind and you couldn't work, uh, you could only beg and, and hope and pray for the mercy of others to put some money in your cup or whatever you had out there. Now, probably if you were, I'm just trying to put myself into another person's shoes, if that was you and you were begging and you were blind, you prayed to God every day that you would receive your sight. And he did receive his sight. But that's not the end of the story. That's not the happily ever after, as we'll see. It gets better than that. John 9, 1. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Now, I find that a lot of times, many times, God walks me through a living sermon. So if it's the week that I'm speaking about this, he gives me an example and he shows me something in the real world, and it's very exciting. He walks me through it. The only problem is when I'm going to talk about trials, I, I shudder for what's going to happen that week. But so I go, I'm out there and in the world, I'm with my son, we're at a public place, And I see somebody who's obviously disabled, severely disabled. And I'm an observer by nature, so I'm watching. People are walking by her. They're going about their business, not trying to be mean, but, you know, everybody's busy in this part of the country. And I said to my son, you know, this is a good example for you, is you've got two arms and two legs, and you can move around pretty good. Maybe God uses us to minister to others, and maybe this is a good opportunity. So we did engage her, but that's not really what I want to talk about. I just want to kind of paint a picture of what we're going to speak about today. Now, there's three basic responses to see someone who's not fully ambulatory or somebody who's disabled. One is, unfortunately, is to ignore. I didn't see that. I may be convicted. I may feel bad for them, but I'm busy and I'm on a schedule. So the first thing is to ignore. Not a good response. A worse response is to blame or show disdain. And you might have even heard it. You know, in tough economic times, healthcare costs rising, some will actually say they're a drain on the healthcare system. So that's an even worse response. The third response is, I think, self-soothing. It's pity. Oh, the poor thing, look at Russ. Looks like he's having a hard time today. And we, 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 we offer these platitudes about the person's situation. But what I find is that Or what I ask is, as believers, what is our responsibility? What's our responsibility? When we see a situation like that, do we say nice things to ourselves to assuage our guilt? You know, do we talk ourselves out of the possibility of helping somebody? What I find is that Christianity is more and more divided into two camps. Okay? Two camps, two polar extremes, and I believe both camps can learn from each other. One is the traditional camp. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. Jesus is the only way. That's true. It's absolutely true. But I'm seeing some in the traditional camp don't really have a heart to help. Some, not all. In the other camp, you have the social gospel crowd. And they're the the new, the neo-Christianity. And they're saying, you know, shoe the shoeless, feed the homeless, um, help the, the needy. And that's a good thing. We have ministries that 
do that as well, but because they're tied into some liberal theologian groups, they back off on the whole Jesus is the only way because it's offensive. So what happens is both sides are wrong. <laughs> Here's the deal. We need to love people, and if we can help, to help. Right? It's a sin, James says, that if we have the means to help someone, and, and all we do is offer platitudes, you know, we have the ability, and we just we never do it. But at the same time, they need the gospel as well. What's the sense in sending people to hell a little, little more well-fed or a little more well-dressed? So here's the question, brothers and sisters. Where are we when a crisis happens? Forget about just the, an average person made in God's image. Where are we when a spouse dies? Where are we when a tragedy strikes? Jesus said that they, the outside world, will know you, my disciples, because of your love for one another. When Jamesburg looks at this church or the Calvary community, do they see love for one another? Do we see when a comrade has fallen on the battlefield that we're there to pick them up and carry them out of harm's way? Otherwise, they're not going to be interested in coming here. Do we just offer platitudes? Oh, I'm so sorry, and I've seen it. I've heard the platitudes. But where are we when, when somebody needs us? The Bible says that faith without works is dead. And I'll tell you, 2,000 years later, faith without works is still dead. These are important questions, serious questions, that we need to ask ourselves. So the disciples' first impulse was to analyze or possibly cast blame. Who sinned? Uh, here's a poor guy who can't see. Who sinned, this man or his parents? You could almost picture the disciples see the beggar and just kind of wave their hand in front of his face and say, yeah, Lord, he's blind. He can't see. So who sinned? Well, Jesus' response was compassion. He wanted to heal the man, give him sight, but also minister to his spirit to save his soul, which is even far more important. The disciples might have been a little self-righteous. I know I'm really picking on the disciples this morning, but if I was there, I probably would have done the same thing because we're flesh. You know, they hung out with Jesus for a while. They saw the miracles. Maybe they said, hey, we're part of a really good group here, and we're like the top guys, right? A little self-righteous behavior. And what do self-righteous people do? They sit back. They're not moved com with compassion, and they just watch other people in their plight, and they become armchair Christians. Now, every pastor, and I have a few pastors here sitting here this morning, has to deal with what's called the you should ministry. Well, the you should ministry doesn't really exist, and we hope it doesn't come here, but every once in a while it rears his head. It's a person who comes, and they always start off the sentence by, you should. You, pastor, the church should, you should, constantly sitting in judgment, saying what other people should do. And I often say, wow, that sounds like a big effort. It sounds like something we could use. What part are you going to play in it? Well, none. God told me that you should. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so I was there for years. I was a you-shooter. I was a poser Christian for a while. I didn't really live my faith. But eventually God convicted me to bigger and better things. Now, before we get upset about picking on the disciples or being convicted this morning, self-righteous behavior, I call, is an aberrant stage of Christian growth. It's not a good stage. It's, it's dysfunctional. And hopefully, we never stay in that self-righteous stage where we just sit back and we just kind of point fingers. 
but never lift a finger to help anybody else. Legalism is also an aberrant stage of Christian growth, and, and I was there as well, unfortunately. I probably went through all the bad stages. You know, we, we get saved, and all of a sudden we're pointing fingers at the world, saying they're all going to hell, but I just, a few months ago, so was I. But by the grace of God, here I am. So let's, let's look at that as well. Two prevailing thoughts that were, that were going on, which will help to fill in the blanks of what you're maybe asking this morning. Well, how does he know that? Well, how can you read into the scripture like that? Two prevailing thoughts. Number one, prenatal sin. Not prenatal vitamins, but prenatal sin. This was an idea that you could sin in the womb. That you could sin so horrifically that God would punish you and you would come out disabled. Of course, that's nowhere in Scripture. There was a direct cause and effect of your sin in the womb. You don't even know anybody yet. You don't know anything. But this is what they believed. The other thought was that there was prenatal spirit beings, good and bad. And basically, prenatal spirit beings were looking for, they were floating around and looking for a body to uh, become a part of so that they could live out their life and be tested in this world. Now, that actually came from Plato. Unfortunately, it, it morphed into some rabbinical teachings, not all, and we'll see in a few verses later that the Pharisees had this idea. And three, it ended up in Mormon theology. Now, I don't just say this, I do my homework. Abraham 3, which is one of their books, and Doctrines and Covenants 93. And both of these issues, so to speak, contributed to congenital sin. So that's why if somebody comes out, and, and, and here's a question, what is normal? Well, what's a normal baby? Are we not allowed to have defects or a mole or a hair growing or a bigger ear or, I mean, who, who gets to decide what a normal child looks like and what a normal child is not? So the whole idea is really absurd if you think about it. So we know this, when sin entered the world, death entered the world, and death through sin and sickness as well. Romans 5 tells us that. But God does not directly slam people. He doesn't, he doesn't wait for us to just get out of line so he could whack us and afflict us with something. That's bad theology. We see that in the book of Job. Job's three friends, after they sat with him and held his hand for a while, when they opened their mouth, that's when they should have just kept their mouth shut, but they basically said to Job, you must have done something really evil for God to do this to you. And that was not the case. So there's not this direct cause and effect. Now, if we sin and we're just in wanton sin and do crazy things and uh, something happens to us, that's, that's our direct cause. That's not necessarily God doing to us. The rain falls on the righteous and the wicked, the Bible says. So it is interesting how some of this stuff got into the disciples' thinking, and Jesus had to constantly correct them. And of course, after the uh, wholesale giving of the Holy Spirit, they were incredible. But for a while, they still had these um, aberrant thoughts, and unfortunately, that gets into the church as well. Verse 3, Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. Now, I'm going to put a period there. There are two main ways of translating this, because uh, there were really no... Uh, punctuations and stuff in the Koine Greek, so they had to go with con context and uh, sentence word order, and there's a whole way of translating the Greek. But there's two main ways of doing this uh, that are acceptable uh, from Greek scholars. I'm going to go with the second one. So he says, his answer is, neither this man nor his parents sin. Not that they don't sin, but this, any, their particular sins did not cause this condition. 
but that the works of God should be revealed to him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, because the night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So this was an appointed time for God to reveal his glory. And again, he didn't afflict him so that God could say, hey, I'm going to torture this guy for 30 or 40 years so that I can do a great miracle and everybody could love me. That's not what he's saying either. He's saying, listen, this is, it's not about a sin issue. This is what happens because of the fall of man. But God is going to show his glory through this situation. Um, I've often heard it said, if you have a bizarre interpretation of Scripture, it's probably not the correct one. So, Christ makes this spiritual analogy again between light and darkness. So just like when the sun is removed out of the sky, I mean, we love to see the sun, it brings us physical light. You know, it warms us, it, it gives so many things. There's photosynthesis taking place and, and all these other things. Uh, but it's a sad thing when the sun is blocked out. We know that when Christ was crucified for three hours, from 12 in the afternoon to 3, there was darkness that covered the land. And that went a long way for the people to believe that, that this was the Son of God. However, Jesus came into the world, not, uh, he came into the world as the spiritual light. He is the light of the world. And when he was removed via the, his death uh, and burial, it was a dark place again. Now, when the Holy Spirit was given sometime later, you know, the world was lit up again because of the Holy Spirit's uh, effective uh, power in the world, salvific, salvific power in the world. So Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. Verse 6. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now this is a very unusual way of healing. But if anyone is looking for formula Christianity... Let me try to squeeze what I can out of the scripture so that I can figure out how I'm going to heal everybody. I'm going to follow what Jesus did. It kind of throws you off because he did it different ways. He, he would say it with a word. He would say this was kind of a little bit of an elaborate way to put the mud on his eye and then send him to the place, the pool, and he washes, and all of a sudden he can see. So Jesus did it different ways. And what I look at in this is that if we really had a formula to worshiping God and a formula to, to get things from God, then we would ignore God. Now you would say, Pastor Joe, that's a harsh thing to say. Well, let me say this, that I think that I might be affected by that. You know, uh, I do it a certain way and my headache goes away. I say it a certain way and that person's healed. I say it a, a certain way and all of a sudden there's a check in the mail. Well, oh, I don't need God anymore. It becomes a routine. It becomes a formula. And Christ was not going to allow that to happen. Jeremiah 17.9 says... The heart is desperately wicked above all things. Who can know it? It's deceitful. So the keys to spiritual understanding, the keys to spiritual gifts is to have a relationship with God. And that's what we preach here. You know, it's not through this church that you're going to be saved or that you're going to walk with God. It's through us showing you the way because we've been there and God showed us. And it's, it's our job to now show others how to walk and how to grow. You could move out of state and the same God who's here could be in Indiana or Indonesia or anywhere. He's, he's everywhere. Uh, you, you don't need to be necessarily physically here. What does a commitment, what does a relationship with God require? Commitment, effort, time, 
things we can't pull out of our pockets. What God is trying to teach us is relationship is a lifelong pursuit. Now, some will look at symbolism in this, and I suppose we can pull some things out of this poultice that he makes from the ground and puts it on the guy's eye. Number one, the clay or the dirt. This is what God made us from, mankind. The truth is, when we pass and we die, and if we're left out, eventually we decay and we're broken down into the same elements that God breathed life into to, to, to give life to Adam. Right? So this is this, this cycle of life that's physical. The only thing that separates us from the dirt and the animals and the plants and this whole cycle of life, so to speak, uh, is this ecosystem, is the spirit. It's the spirit that sets us apart, that makes us more than carbon and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and sulfur. It's the spirit that he infuses in us. So this is what we're looking at. So the clay or the dirt. Actually, Adam, or I believe the Hebrew word is, Hebrew word is Adoma in the Hebrew for Adam, when he created Adam, the first man, he actually took the, the dirt of the earth, the dust of the earth, and he breathed life into it. And Adam in the Hebrew also means, it can mean red earth or dirt. So imagine that. Hey, Adam, come over here. You know, come over here, dirt. You got a, <laughs> you got a smudge on your face. You know, let me wipe that off. But it was true. It was who he was. But the difference between him and the dirt was the fact that he had a life-giving spirit in him. The second point we see with the dirt is the water from the Lord's mouth. Now, this is in, could be indicative of the Holy Spirit. See, God spoke creation with his mouth into existence. It's amazing. He can do that. Jesus also, we'll see later, breathed the Holy Spirit onto the disciples. So God has a lot of power that comes out of his mouth. And you put these two together, and it, it's, it's healing. And this is a picture of, that God always has the ability to mend any situation in our lives as long as it comes from him. And this morning, you may have a situation. You, you may have come here this morning with a difficulty. And just as God healed the blind man and raised the dead, he can breathe life into your situation. You may have come here this morning and said, I just can't take it anymore. I can't find the way out of it. And maybe you've tried every earthly measure to get yourself out of this situation and you still find yourself at the starting line. Just as God healed this man, that's still available to you as an individual this morning. I don't know your situation. There's too many of you <laughs> to interview, <laughs> but this is the situation. So there may be even a mended heart uh, this morning that, that's in need. Verse 8. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is not this who sat and begged? Some said, this is he. Others said, he is like him. He said, I am he. Therefore, they said to him, how are your eyes opened? He answered and said, a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received sight. Then they said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. Jesus didn't stick around for everyone to throw him a party and to glorify him. He did what he was sent to do. As the light of the world, he tried to uh, put as much light into this world while he was here. It wasn't for him to hang around and get glory. And I think a lot of ministries can take a, a, a message from that. That's, this should be the template for ministry. That in ministry, we do God's will. We don't do this to get glory. And if the man didn't receive sight, 
until he washed in the pool of Siloam, then it makes sense that he didn't know what Jesus looked like, did he? He heard his voice. He might have heard the talking. He goes, he washes, he, get, he gets the scene. He goes, okay, I don't know what he looks like because I just saw today, but you know, a man called Jesus did this for me. Now we can look at the symbolism here as well, and we can say that the fact that Jesus sent them to the pool of Siloam to wash, maybe he dipped. Maybe he went all the way under. Maybe he just wanted to get all that stuff out. He wanted to follow those instructions to a T so that he could see, because this was his big chance. No one else gave him any hope. This was his big chance. And maybe we can look at that immersion in water as a future or a type of baptism of the Holy Spirit, because in the end of the story or the account, the man actually gets saved. So these last five verses were the reaction for those that, from those that were close to him. The next few verses we're going to see is the next step. Now, everyone's saying, wow, this is a great miracle. Well, how do we figure this out? Well, what does it mean? So they say, hey, let's go to the religious leaders. Let's see what they have to say, the Pharisees. So we'll jump into that. Verse 13. They brought him who was formerly blind to the Pharisees, which were religious leaders. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. He said to them, he put clay on my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them, among the religious system. They said to the blind man again, What do you say about him because he opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. They were really trying to destroy the evidence here. You know, they were trying to find something because this was a problem for them, a huge problem. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opens his eyes, we do not know. He is of age, ask him. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. Now, this is the Jews, meaning not all Jewish people, but the, the group of religious leaders who really had power in that society. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed that he was the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. It is humorous. I mean, it gets funnier as we go on, the man's response to the religious leaders, but... So what did they do? Well, we have to make sense of this. This is a miracle. So why don't we go to the synagogue? Why don't we go to the church? Why don't we go to the house of worship to ask those that should know what this means? So they start to do this investigation. Unfortunately, they weren't much help. And that's one of the complaints today about religion. They're not much help. I've heard they say, don't question God. Don't question us. You don't ask that question. Don't ask any more questions. Uh, and that's really not what a religious or a spiritual system is supposed to do. It's supposed to help provide answers and help us negotiate this life in light of spirituality. On verse 14, it says, again, Jesus healed on the Sabbath. You get the impression after a bunch of healings on the Sabbath that Jesus I don't know maybe if enjoyed is the right way, but he challenged, okay, some of you are shaking your head, you agree with me. 
He challenged the religious system, but he was going to stand his ground on an issue that struck at the heart of the hypocrisy and the misleading of the people by the religious system. I would say this. There's two definitions for the word compromise. I would say this. We should always do our best to compromise, to come to an agreement. However, there will be times that we need to stand our ground. Right? And compromising can lead to compromising. The one positive can lead to the negative. There are some things that maybe, well, not maybe, but that are scriptural and, and what God shows in his word. And if we start compromising with others just for an agreement, we end up compromising in a negative way. And that's not good. Verse 24. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, Give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. Then they said to him again, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want also to become his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. I often wonder why the Lord sometimes allows things. These are the, one of the questions that we ask, and you know, maybe when we get to heaven, we can have a real long list of questions, and then you know, if we can't answer them here, he might have the answer. So why does he allow these hypocrites uh, to be part of the spiritual system? Well, it wasn't long after this where that whole spiritual system was destroyed. God is long-suffering. You know, it's the same reason why God allows things today. Because if you understand the doctrine of hell, eternal torment, punishment, and suffering, which you also understand God is not willing that any of them should die and end up in that state. We spoke about that last Sunday in Ezekiel 33. He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, in the punishment of the wicked, but that all would come to repentance. We see that in the New Testament. So I believe because of the doctrine of hell, God is very long-suffering. So that if somebody eventually ends up there, they put themselves there. God didn't put them there. It was their choice. Different way of looking at things. In verse 16, the religious leader said, This man, meaning Jesus, is not from God. In verse 24, they said, He is a sinner. If you study sources even outside of the Bible, historical sources, they'll tell you that the religious system was corrupt. It was a family business. There was a lot of, um, you know, uh, dealings with the Roman authorities. And that's why Jesus, one of the reasons he was crucified because Jesus came to upset that apple cart, so to speak. So this system left people in a hopeless situation. They had no solution, and they didn't want anyone else to come in and offer solutions. Even in Christendom today, there are those that build. They have a mandate from the Lord. They're working with the Lord. They're building things. And then there are those that tear down. And the truth is that those that tear down look to seek their relevance. If you ever find a person who claims to be a Christian and they're always tearing down this work or that work or this work, they're seeking relevance. They have no fresh ideas, and this is the only thing that they can do. 
You're putting up three bricks in the foundation, and when you turn your head, they pull one block off. You know what I'm saying? So this is what's going on here. It's, it's parasitic, actually. Verse 30. The men answered and said to them, Why, this is a marvelous thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Again, he was blind, and I'm speculating he was probably a beggar. He had to be cared for. Again, no social programs like we have today. Family took care of him. They sent him out at times to make a little extra money. Probably wasn't able to be educated on spiritual matters. And this made them furious. Here are the truths that this man espouses. Number one, in the name of God, a man, Jesus, gives sight to the blind, and you, religious leaders, know nothing of him? Don't you think you should investigate this and get back to me? Right? Two, he says, God does not hear sinners. Everything that's said in the Bible from a person is not necessarily theologically accurate. If God never heard sinners, none of us would be saved because we've cried out to God and said, Lord, I I want you. I'm turning to you. I repent. He hears that. However, Psalm 66, 18 says that if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. And that means that if we're double-minded in our attitude towards God, he's not just going to grant stuff if we're willfully and wantonly sinning and we make a lifestyle of sinning and we say, hey, by the way, God, in addition to this, can you give me some stuff? He's not going to do that. Jeremiah 29, 13 says that, you know, when we seek God with a whole heart, we'll be found by him. Sometimes we don't seek him with a whole heart, right? And God's not going to cheapen himself. He's not going to say, oh, you know, he's not like a genie in the bottle where we rub the side of it, he comes out, we get what we want, we say, okay, now go back in the bottle. Next time I need you, I'll rub the side again. It isn't the way it works. So there was some truth to what he was going to say. And he's, if Jesus was in sin, how could he do these things? It doesn't make any sense. So the man heals, the man was healed, and he musters up courage to stick up for the Lord. Now, there was great loss of community hanging in the balance. If you understand, after the destruction of the first temple, synagogues started springing up because there was no place to worship. And even after the second temple was built, the synagogues remained. And they remain to this day. So a little history on the Jewish house of worship. To be kicked out of the synagogue was to really lose uh, your fellowship with the community. So this is what this man is going to lose. Probably the difficulty of his life living as a blind beggar gave him the fortitude to be able to make this decision and stick up for the Lord. Now, the man's parents, on the other hand, had what I call the dreaded fear of man. They couldn't handle this. They didn't want any part of it. And it almost looks like they throw Junior under the bus. You know, go ask him. You know, we're not going to tell you anymore. We're still in good standing, right? (laughs) There's a book that was written. It's called When Man is Big and God is Small by Ed Welch. I think every Christian should read that. It addresses fear of man. 
well, you know, God, you're up there, and I have to deal with these people, my coworkers, my family, so I'm going to have to capitulate every once in a while. So it's man becomes really big, and God becomes really small. And that's not the way it should be. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man brings a snare or a trap, but those who trust the Lord will be safe. I think one of the, and I'm just going to look at this in an aggregate, aggregate sense, let's say our church, let's say other Calvaries, let's say other churches. I think that the worst thing for Christianity today, especially in the age of social networking, is fear of man. We all want to be liked. We want our posts to be liked. We want to have as much friends as possible. And when something is wrong, we don't stick up. We don't get a backbone. So I will say that you see this in the military or, or policing or certain organizations where you have to stick together. You have to do the right thing. When there's trouble, you can't abandon your buddy. But Christians... Jesse Ventura said it. I know he's, a, he's an oaf, but he said that Christians are weak. And you know what? Some of it's right. God didn't call us to be a bunch of weaklings and not to have a backbone. What we're afraid of is we're afraid of the fear of man. Well, I work with this person. Well, I've known this person for years, and they don't stand up for what's right because of loss. Jesus said, count the cost and follow me. Sometimes we count the cost and stop following him and we, we immerse ourselves in an unhealthy relationship or unhealthy ties because it's easier for ourselves. We need to stop doing that because we're setting a bad example to the unsaved world. And they're right in some of their characterizations. This man had the courage to get a backbone, to lose it all in the world because he stuck up for the Lord. He stuck up for what was going on in that ministry. 34. They answered and said to him, You were completely born in sins, and are you teaching us? And they cast him out. Oh, the arrogance. Too prideful to hear a suggestion from someone other than their little group. And here's where it comes home. You were born, you were steeped in sins. Remember what I talked about the disciples, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? Well, now you see the other part of it, the religious leaders echoing this. You were born in sins. Why? Because he was born blind. So even as the religious leaders, they had no answer. Worse than having no answer is they had the wrong answer. What if he listened to that? What if he had the fear of man and went through his whole life saying, you know, I can, I can see now, but I must be an underclass in the caste system. Because I was born this way. Stop with the I was born this way nonsense. Sometimes you've got to take the baggage from our past and leave it at the cross. Jesus said, take my yoke, take my burden. You'll see it's a lot lighter and it fits a lot better than what you were carrying. You're going to get herniated discs holding that thing, <laughs> spiritually speaking. So the religious system was wrong. Enter Jesus again, verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. 
What's interesting is, again, the blind man thought that, hey, this is the fairy tale ending. I can see. This is the happily ever after. Jesus went to show him, no, that's part of it. But it gets even better. He led him to faith. And the man worshipped worshiped Jesus. He got his first sight, and now he gets his second sight. And it all comes together. And this morning, you may have come here with a friend. You may have seen the sign. You may have heard of a Calvary, and you're here this morning. And maybe you were looking to get a little uplifted. But maybe the Lord wants to offer you so much more than that. Like this man, hey, I can see, look, sun, trees, people are moving, animals, you know, flowers are growing, look at all the pretty colors. But he got so much more than that. So if you came here looking for something from church, God may be looking to provide you, listen, I don't care if you're really young or you're really mature and you've lived a full life, he still wants you, you know, he still wants you to be a part of his family and his kingdom. And that might be available to you. Well, it is available to you this morning. It's a question of whether you want it or not. Verse 39, he says, For judgment may have come into the world. Now, you may say, well, gee, in John 3.17, it says that he didn't come to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. This is a different side of the same coin. Jesus came into the world, and this is simple logic, for salvation, not to condemn the world. But if he is the only way and he's rejected, well, then his very presence also brings condemnation. But that doesn't have to be available to anyone. And he came into the world that those who do not see may see, and I believe he's speaking spiritually here, and those who see may be made blind. In other words, those who thought that this is the right way, They were self-righteous. They entrenched themselves in the religious system. I see. Oh, I know spiritual things. You don't have to teach me anything. There's only few people that I can sit under. And I can can name them on one hand. Because I, I know so much. And he says that they may be made blind. You really want to believe that? Jesus lets you do it. You know, he'll let you do it. He's not going to dominate us. He's not going to trample over our free will. If we really want to be foolish like that, there's an expression that there's no one so blind as those that refuse to see. 40, last two verses. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. In other words, when I remember a time when Jesus was, I remember a time like I was there, right? (laughs) When I read the scripture, Jesus had the disciples with him and they were all jockeying for position. They got a little self-righteous again. They wanted to be sitting on his right hand and his left hand. I could just see Jesus gently push them aside, find a little kid, 10-year-old, pick him up, put him in the middle of them and said, you can't even see the kingdom of heaven unless you're converted and be like this little child, that childlike humility. So what he's saying here is that we can say we're blind. We can say, you know what, Lord, I don't have all the answers. You know, Lord, I want to know what your truths are, and Jesus will give you sight. But if we act like we know everything, then there's a problem, there's a barrier. We start to develop spiritual cataracts on our eyes. Everything becomes fuzzy. 
There are religious people today who think there's nothing else they can learn. They can only sit under certain people. And therefore, they develop now a critical spirit. There's a critique on everything. The way the carpets look, the way the message was handled, the way the altar call was done. I didn't like the worship. You're blind. You're missing the point of the scripture. You're missing the point of why we come together. Charles Stanley had a great teaching. August, I wrote it down, August 7th. It's how to listen to God's word if you go on his website. Actually, there's two parts to it. And he speaks about those who come in and they don't listen the proper way. Their ears are clogged and their eyes are, are, are blocked. At the end of the day, how did everybody make out? Well, the parents remained in the religious community without their son, also without courage and without integrity. And they were not fully able to enjoy their son's double blessing. Two, the blind man. He could have gained his physical sight, but remained spiritually blind. However, he chose both. Religious leaders had physical sight, thought they had spiritual sight, but they were blind. And Jesus left many of them in that state. Where are we this morning? As I walk around, I look up in the balcony, I see a lot of eyeballs fixed on me. Right? Stop staring at me. (laughs) So I can only conclude that at least everybody here, to varying degrees, has physical sight. But the man caught up with us, the beggar. He's in the same boat. He can see. But wouldn't it be a shame if this morning in a church that that man has passed us up? That that man not only gained his physical sight, but now he has spiritual sight. He's born again. He sees things as they really are. Wouldn't it be a shame if some of us who saw from birth, but didn't have that spiritual sight left this morning without that insight. Jesus said, and I'm going to, you know, you can look at this many different ways, that it would be better to get into heaven without physical eyes or one plucked out, right, than to have two eyes and to be cast into hell to preclude salvation. What may be lacking in our spiritual sight? Again, the title of the message is More Than a Miracle. My question to you is, do you see? Are you open to the Lord's word? Are you open to his way, God's way of salvation? Do you want that spiritual sight as well as physical sight? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you. And uh, we look at your word and it ministers to us. And here's a man who, it's funny how some struggle with things and then all of a sudden their situation breaks in a positive way and they become a little arrogant. This man could have gone that way.